welcome to a new podcast. My name is Jerry Gagosian, and this is Art Smack. Joined with my co-host, Matt, a.k.a. my roommate. Roommate? Well, come on, I'm a little more than a roommate, no? Okay, sometimes he goes to Trader Joe's with me, too. <laughs> well, thank you, Jerry. I'm Matt. I'm an art market analyst and curator, and I'm thrilled to be here hosting this show with you. We will tackle the latest art world trends, headlines, and their crossovers into pop culture. There's always a political side, and of course, the financial markets and the art market roar louder than ever. (laughs) (laughs) It will also take the opportunity to answer some of the burning questions that I get regularly bombarded with in my inbox and in person. No question is a bad question or a stupid question when it comes to how to navigate the art world, the art market, and your career. So we're going to be answering big questions like who's the gatekeepers of the art world to what makes an artwork so expensive or why is this considered good? On this episode of Art Smack, we'll take a look back at the recent art fairs in Europe, London Freeze and Paris Plus. We'll discuss the recent events surrounding climate protests in the world's most prestigious museums involving some of the most treasured artworks uh, in history. We'll take a peek into the art world calendar for the month of November, including some incredible gallery shows in New York that you have to see. And we'll preview the upcoming Christie's auction for the Paul Allen collection. Hildy and I got a chance this week to check it out and we'll dive deep into it later in the show. So we've got a lot to chat about this week and this is just the beginning. So welcome to Artsmap. All right, our first section, we're going to play a fun game that I have. A game? Yeah. What you got for me, Jerry? Yeah, I invented this game yesterday for you because, once again, I got the most obnoxious artist statement press release in my inbox. Uh, I don't know who wrote this artist statement, if it was a very underpaid, pedantic, you know, recently graduated MFA student or if this was the artists themselves. But nonetheless, we often get a lot of something that we call art speak in the art world. I think all of you intuitively do know, like if you ever walked into a museum or a gallery gallery, and you read the vinyl text that sits on the wall or peeked into the catalog that they hand to you, and you just see like a conflation of words that absolutely mean, mean nothing and make no sense. Yeah. So let's let's throw out some words so that people can kind of like get a sense of what we're talking about. Um, You'll hear words like confluence. Confluence, liminality. Exploring the relationships between. Right. It's just <laughs> the juxtaposition. Juxtaposition is a huge one. Yeah. There's always an investigation between the relationship of, you know, so instead of just being like, the artist likes to paint. (laughs) This is a painting that like the artists use color. Yeah. It's always like the artist dove deep to explore how the conflation between the two inanimate objects of being and soul. Wow, you're writing one right now. I, I, I literally can do this. Yes. There's this hilarious website called Artie Bollocks that I found actually when I was in college and It is this AI bot that can generate an artist statement. I have a real-life artist statement that I received in my inbox, and then I have one that was written by an AI bot. And I'm going to read the two of them. Matt cannot see which one is which. I'm going to read them both to you, and then I want you to guess. (laughs) Which one an AI bot wrote and which one allegedly a human being Let's do it. Okay, you ready? Mm-hmm. I'm not going to call out the artist's name, so I'm going to say the artist, okay? Blank's work taps into the social and spiritual dimension of everyday objects. His idiosyncratic 
democratic approach to art making relies upon careful balance of chance and deep consideration, allowing for each piece at once engage his personal history and encourage meditative, individualized interpretation. The artist activates his work in intensely physical performances that demonstrate his ethos of transformation and invoke the art historical traditions of assemblage, conceptual, and performance art. A contemporary mythmaker, the artist is an artist in and of the world, reverent of the traditions that came before him, but committed to forging his own path. Wow. Okay. Okay, so that's one. That's one. Now, Just some high-level thoughts, like, what? Okay. What am I, what is it? Okay, anyway. That's your high-level thought? What? Huh? What? Excuse me? Come again? Now, number two. The artist's work explores the relationship between acquired synesthesia and unwanted gifts. With influences as diverse as Kafka and L. Ron Hubbard, new variations are created from both mundane and transcendent textures. The artist, since they were a teenager, has been fascinated by the ephemeral nature of the mind. What starts out as contemplation soon becomes finessed into a cacophony of defeat leaving only a sense of dread and the possibility of new understanding. As subtle forms become reconfigured through frantic and repetitive practice, the viewer is left with a testament to the darkness of our era. Wow. And that's number two, Mr. L. Ron Hubbard, who is the that's founder of Scientology, He's the right? founder. So influenced by the Scientologist guy. Okay. And Kafka. And Kafka. Interesting. So uh, looking at both of those, my- Hearing both of those. Hearing both of those. That's correct. I did not look. My gut tells me the latter. Mr. Elron Hubbard, it's too specific to be an AI bot. So I'm going to go with the Elron Hubbard is the real artist. And, and that's my final answer. Jared? Okay. What would you say their work is about? If, you know, based on what I just read, what can you- deduce that the work is about scams scams <laughs> yeah so the truth is is that number two mr kafka l ron hubbard inspired on, was on, written on. by an ai no bot. are you serious I swear to god and the first one was so no ai first bot. one that mumble jumble that i just read you is a allegedly real artist statement put out by a gallery of high repute, or would you say that repute? Sure, you can say. Um, <laughs> this gallery has some skin in the game, and they put that statement out. And you know, I've always held a grudge as somebody who went to art school for seven years. I've always had this grudge against art speak because, first of all, it's holding sort of this indecipherable language over the heads of the general audience in a way where you're basically telling people you can't understand. Yeah, this. we have we have like the Rosetta Stone or something. Yeah. Like you can't interpret. This is just too good for you. Yeah. You just can't understand this. This actually this goes into something I've written about in the past, which is the there's these barriers to entry, I think, in the art world for a general public. And one of those is of course the language in which people speak. Not only what they write in the exhibition catalogs and vinyls but how they talk, like the way they go up to a painting and they use adjectives that are just so foreign to common speak. Like there's of course art world terms like impasto or whatever, but they, they just, the hyperbole and the way that they mm -hmm. kind of phonally talk about something in front of them, that's a barrier. And actually it really is lazy and phoned in just because it's polysyllabic, right. just because you're using a lot of syllables and you're sort of right. showing off your, you know, 
possession to use synonyms.com, you know, that doesn't make you necessarily smarter or make the artwork sound any better or make it any more important or relevant because you're phoning it in. Because it's always been my belief that the, the simpler and the easier you can explain an artwork, the stronger the artwork actually is. And actually, the best artworks need almost yeah. no explanation. And, I, I, you know, you, you add the language barriers and then put that with these cold, white, <laughs> concrete, brutalist gallery scenes. And then you get the judgy workers who just looked at you with such skepticism as you walk through. Well, unless, of course, you're a known collector and very wealthy, you know, they will need yeah. the time of day. So I can imagine it's kind of intimidating for someone who just wants to check out a show to walk into these spaces. Trust your gut is what we're saying, whether you're in the art world or not. Like, it's okay. It's okay to say something's beautiful. Right? Yeah. I like that. Right? That's cool. Or like, yeah, like, oh, the colors are like Matt always like teases me because I still go into galleries and I and I mean it in the highest like way possible. But I'm like, that's really cute. Cute. Yeah. I don't care. I it's okay to still use sort of pedantic. Yeah, or what monosyllabic, you know, term. You can of course always educate yourself and have an elevated opinion and vocabulary on art, but don't phone it in. Don't fake it. Don't because, pull something from a text. Because you know what, guys? The AI bot is beating you, is all I've got to say. Moving on to our next section. What is the art fail of the week? All right. We've been talking about this for a while. Our queen? We've perhaps? got... She's not my queen. Really? No, and I know this is going to divide a lot of our listeners, but the Anna Delvey worship, she continues to hang in the air. First of all, I don't know a lot of people, real people in the art world who actually did know her. You and I are very involved in the you know New York art world. So I think there is sometimes this overemphasis on, like, her relationship to the art world in general. She was a scam artist, and there's lots of those who just had the unfortunate position of getting caught. Why are you poor? <laughs> yeah. And, you know, she has some, she has some great one-liners and some finesse, but what's the deal with, like, villain worship these days in culture i think i've seen it if you look at netflix within the last few months you just see it all trending like any type of scammy but typically the guys or gals who are leading these scams they're very good they're very smart and they're typically in the upper echelons of society or at least dipping their toes into so whether it's like billy mcfarlane with Firefest. Or there was this entire thing about the Silicon Valley fails, like Theranos. Or there was some stuff about the WeWork guy became like a huge thing when he came back. So I, I, I don't know. Then you go back to like the vegan thing. What's it called? Bad vegan. Mm -hmm. And just these types of high level kind of sociopathic scammy people. Mm -hmm. And whatever algorithms feed in Netflix told them, keep pumping these guys out. And I think Delvey fell right into that. It was a sensationalist story at the time. And it captivated a broad swath of the American conscience. And it is, it is an interesting train wreck to watch. Mm -hmm. And the latest news coming out of it is that Anna Delvey, ankle monitor regardless, isn't stopping her from hosting dinner parties in her apartment in New York City. So. Which apparently is like very lavish, according to some like article I read in, I don't know, like the cut or something. She's like recommending like, oh, I only order from like Scandinavian or Japanese designers. Where is this money coming apartment. from? I'm like, yeah, exactly. Where the fuck's this money coming from? Like, I, I can't even get like pillows from CB2. <laughs> like, what, what's going on? I would love to hear our audience opinion on this because I know a lot of people that are sort of like on the the feminist argument that are just like, you know, there's a lot of men that do far worse things and she just happened to get caught and it's sexist to like be sort of against her or like not in her favor. And I don't know. I just don't agree in general with like 
liars. We uh, encounter them with such regularity <laughs> in the art world, period. And this chick has just been proven to lie and s- steal and extract money that does not belong to her over and over and over again. She's and she's she's good at it. And instead of, you know, being punished, she's being rewarded for it. I wouldn't be surprised if she gets signed by like William Morris and she's like a, a public profile person for sure. And that's it. That was the art fail of the week. Anna Delvey worshipism. And now this week's news. Anna Wyant, one of the hottest artists right now in the contemporary painting space, was recently signed with Gagosian Gallery. This is off the back of a career showing with Blum and Poe out West. She had a meteoric rise in her career. And last auction season in May, a couple of her paintings made their way to Christie's and just blew the doors off. And there was tremendous demand. So as it typically goes within the art market, there's a, there's a new star on the horizon. And her solo show opened up at Gagosian this week. And all the cool kids were there. So Jerry, looking at the paintings, we see figurative stuff. And what's so interesting about it is these are real life people, right? Yeah. In the portraits of these, there's one of the hero images of the banner is a young blonde girl standing on the head of someone single tone with their arms raised in kind of a W or a V format. Mm-hmm. And that happens to be someone that we know. The way I posed it when I wrote it is like, are these the new uh, Maryland Mar- paintings, uh, Warhol Maryland paintings? And it's uh, funny because, of course, Anna Wyant herself is gorgeous and looks like a contemporary Marilyn Monroe. And she is painting these real-life figures who happen to be what I, I haven't researched every single woman that she's painting. And anyone who knows me knows I love a, a beautiful painting of a beautiful woman. She is painting a certain echelon of global society. It's not even a New York society. It's um, the billionaire and millionaire, <laughs> billionaire and millionaire class of society. So um, you know, there, there's this one painting that it's pretty clear is Sophia Cohen, or I'm going to speculate is Sophia Cohen. We know that they're very good friends. The painting looks a lot like her. There's a picture of her posing, and it's her. Um, is she standing on? I we should look at it. Is she standing on somebody's head? It looks like, or is she phone? standing on a ho- the back of a horse? It's cut. It's kind of cropped. It's a human face for sure, with a very what it looks like an elongated neck. So take that. Okay. So I mean, what the symbolism of that? Um, and you know. When when Anna came out, I I made a wise crack joke, and I think a lot of people did. Where we said, you know, this is like derivative, you know, John Curran painting, whatever. I think she's a young artist. She's continuing to find her voice and her style, and I see a huge departure in this body of work where she's, I think, really stepping out and finding something that is truly her own i find myself in this position sometimes like where with the imposter syndrome that almost everybody has in the art world when you're placed in the room and in the company of people who are in the billionaire and millionaire class and perhaps you just didn't have the good fortune of coming from that position yourself in life you know you you never really know what to do with it and a lot of times as artists Um, In my case, I satirize it. In her case, she is painting it. She's painting these women. In a way, it's a form of uh, sort of like acknowledgement, celebrity worship to an extent because Sophia Cohen is Steve Cohen's daughter. And we maybe you can explain why that is so significant, who Steve Cohen is. Steve Cohen 
one of the titans of the hedge fund industry, founder of SAC Capital. Um, Steve is also the owner of the New York Mets, but Steve's history in art collecting is, is rich and his collection spans genres and artists. It's truly a spectacular one. And he is really one of the preeminent global art collectors out there. If you look at that art news, top 250 collectors or whatever that number is that they do every year, he always has a firm place in that in the collection. Um, very generous too with its time. He, he tours them into museums around the world and always offers his work for exhibitions. So it, it is a significant, and he's been collecting for, for decades now. And Sophia is the child in, the fam in his family that naturally gravitated towards this part of Steve's life and started like advising her dad when she was a little girl being like, you need to buy Jonas Wood. Like, <laughs> you know, when she was very little, very precocious, you know, for her to sort of begin to be painted into art history herself. You know, th this harkens back to so many things. Like, I mean, we've always had royal royalty to an extent. Uh, there's been portraiture of royalty, and this is being done at the highest level, and these paintings will go into private collections that will ultimately fall into uh, the hands of extremely important museums and institutions around the world. So obviously this is an important exhibition in New York that we highly recommend that you go and see. And again, you know, very curious about your feedback on the sh on the show and your thoughts because there there is some what's the word uh why why am i missing this word like i guess some people would say that anna wyant could be slightly divisive because she's so young and the well here 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 can maybe can add some context so annie armstrong who writes wet paint, wet paint which is Artnet's gossip column. Gossip column, but Annie does some reporting, and she really does dig into things that she finds out information um, on the ground. And in the latest edition of Wet Paint, Annie talks about the prices, the primary prices. And for those who don't know, a primary price for an artwork is the price that you first pay for it at the gallery or directly from the artist. So this has nothing to do with auction houses and multiple bidders on the piece. So <laughs> Annie talks about, wow, she feels stupid that she did not snag a $450 work of paper by Anna Wyant a few years back at an art fair in the Hamptons because the current works that are up at the gallery now are going for anywhere between $300,000 to $600,000. So clearly that illustrates the rise of an artist. And just a few years, within a few years. Within a few years, going from under $1,000 for works on papers to 300,000. That said, if you track Anna's gallery shows through the career, there was a progression forward. She didn't go from 450 to 300,000, but that's, that's an eye catching, you know. I mean, that's as long as Jerry Agosian's been alive. Yeah. And yeah. It's been, it's been tremendous growth. So curious to see your guys' thoughts. Go check out the show. It's down in Chelsea. Another show that I guess we should talk about. <laughs> oh, this one's a fun one. <laughs> that we we personally have not seen this show yet, so I'm, I can't be too critical beyond what we've read and sort of discussed is that Alex Katz had a big retrospective at the Guggenheim, which according to art news and other art media outlets has completely bombed. Now, <laughs> um, oh, and of, of you know, a, a very uh, keen-eyed Jerry... A friend of Jerry Gagosian has, uh, you know, also had some very harsh things to say about the exhibition. It's funny, before we dive into it, I just will say that I you can always sense when somebody's got a big retrospective on the market, because usually about three, four years before the retrospective is coming, you don't know why, but you start going to all these art fairs and you start seeing just like this massive yeah, unloading yeah. of the works. Uh, critical mass building. Everybody is selling them secondarily. And then it's, it's basically somebody somewhere is building a case yeah. to, to create Power a retrospective. 
And so anyways, the show is up right now at the Guggenheim and Art News did yeah. not have a good. It's very interesting. I mean, you know, Guggenheim has an amazing history of really good retrospective. What was your favorite that you've ever seen there? Saigo Shang, have you ever seen that one? No. Oh my God. So Saigo Shang was a Chinese, is a Chinese artist. He had the, they were, they were sculptures and installations of animals. Typically there's the most famous shot are a few tigers that are suspended in air. <laughs> oh, I know this artist. An arrow is pointed into. Yes. Yes. He, yes. He's most famous for, he called them fireworks paintings of some sort. So he would explode gunpowder and create these beautiful abstract canvases. But in the Guggenheim, he did these these animals and they were uh, around the water hole was another big one. That was an incredible retrospective. What about you? Mine. I mean, I'm going to give a, a, a very cliche Hildy answer here. Uh, home off Clint. Yes, that was the iconic. That was like, you know, I, uh, I, I, I wept. favorite. I think that is Jerry's favorite artist. So if you ever, if you ever find yourself on Jeopardy and they ask you, what is Jerry Vosian's favorite artist? Yeah. I cried every floor. Yeah, my little brother, my poor little brother, who I think was maybe twenty three at the time. I like dragged my little brother was like in the navy, like not into art whatsoever. I was like, "Can you, do you please want to come with me to the show?" And he was like, "Sure, whatever." Um, like we, we were like doing like trade for trade. Like I went to the World Trade Center and like rode up the elevator, scared shitless, and in return he was like going to go to the Guggenheim with me. And uh, and I just like shamed him the whole time because I like as soon as I walk in, just tears streaming down my face, like every painting. I'm like, you don't understand. <laughs> like she knew the that spirituality. This, yeah, this work wasn't meant to be seen for 75 years <laughs> after her death. Like these are portals into another dimension. Like and he's just like, Hildy, you have to chill out right now. <laughs> so anyways, that was my favorite Guggenheim show. So like you said, Guggenheim has this amazing and they form memories and people who invisible. Mm -hmm. So for those who don't know, Alex Katz. So Alex Katz is a 95-year-old painter, and he is still alive today. In the Guggenheim exhibition catalog, they talk about Alex Katz as an emerging in the 20th century, forming a mode of figurative painting that fused the energy of, here we go with art speak again, fused <laughs> the energy of abstract expressionist canvas with the American vernaculars of the magazine, billboard, and movie screen. To me, this is not speaking, not art speaking. Mm -hmm. He is a portrait, very pop style and influence, flatness. I think I hear, I see when I look at his works, there's not too much modeling and detail of the skin, but they create these striking, bold contrast portraits um, figures. So the Alice Cat show opened up recently at Guggenheim and here is the headline from our news. Alex Katz's massive Guggenheim retrospective is the season's biggest disappointment. Interesting. So he goes on, the writer says, Katz detractors, I must admit to being one, find his work formally audacious and conceptually vapid. Here we go with the art speak. One no, but that's okay. Conceptually vapid. That's He's an good. art critic, so he has to kind of be more explanatory. Ceaseless variations on a theme that have become hundrum. Mm -hmm. His buzzy show at the Guggenheim Museum in New York did little to change my mind. It's Katz's second New York retrospective in three decades, and it's a smart-looking assembly of his greatest hits and some of his lesser-known later works, but ultimately a disappointment. Okay, I'm just going to say this. And, and So when I was in Switzerland this year uh, for Art Basel in June, I had the exquisite privilege of visiting the Byler and seeing a retrospective of Mondrian. And what I did not know about Mondrian was the incredible evolution that that human being and artist yeah. went through throughout his life. So he started in one place and you know, when a lot of times you say Mondrian, you think of one thing, you think of grid. Plasticism. So yeah. was, and I'm sure... You guys have probably all seen his most famous kind of grid line paintings with the primary colors of the mm -hmm. red, the yellow, the blue, the straight edged black lines, mm -hmm. white backgrounds. It's pretty iconic. Yeah. One of them made news recently because it was discovered that <laughs> it, it had been hanging in the museum upside down for like 70 years. The wrong way. The wrong way. But anyways, the truth of the matter is, is that this artist had 
was not a one-hit wonder by any sense of one's imagination. This person had a true evolution evolution yeah. and artistic immersion into like how he changed stylistically and when you looked at his work as he moved through the different styles you could see how he was playing with paint playing with perspective playing with color playing with different um the same imagery but different lighting different seasons different you know uh being in dialogue with different artists and different movements in different countries at the same time it was galaxy mind blowing for me because i had always just placed him in this little no pun intended little grid in my mind uh, and and so to come back to Alex Katz and part of the reason, you know, I don't feel super inclined to like pay money to go and see this show, though, you know, if somebody invites me, I'll go, <laughs> is like you can see an Alex Katz a mile away. Mm -hmm. um, there's I've, I've never seen one and said, oh, my God, I I feel soul or I see soul in that. And that perhaps is like the conceptual framework for the works they are meant to be flat. They're meant to be like posterized. They're meant to be sort of these like advert advertainment type looking paintings. But I think what the critic who wrote the article means to say in non-art -spe speak terms is like it's the same thing over and over for so many years. And unfortunately, this is what happens when pe people get too much fame for one thing too fast is they just get stuck doing the same thing over and over and over. And you know what? I don't know Alex Katz. I don't know where he's at spiritually, mentally. I don't know how he feels being a 90-year-old man looking back. He's probably very satisfied with his life, so I'm not going to be a judge of that. But in terms of me being a consumer of art and a lover of art i'm gonna say that like the buck stops at like yeah they're pretty paintings but if you see three or four you've seen them all mm. so next news story climate protesters are trying to fuck up art wow what a <laughs> unbelievable I, you've seen a trickle of these clips that have gone viral on Twitter and TikTok and Instagram of climate activists, what would you say, defacing, using really iconic paintings by like Van Gogh, Monet, the Vermeer girl with the pearl earring to make a point about their frustrations towards the West's environmental policies today. So obviously, this is a hot-blooded issue that I think is causing a lot of young people, particularly in Europe, to feel extremely passionate and frustrated. So naturally, a protest movement has formed out of this, and the conduit for that protest has been the defacing publicly of masterpiece works of art, which, of course, cameras rushed into the galleries to film them, and news outlets across the world felt compelled to report on it. So, Jerry, I guess my question for you on this one is, what does this have to do with the art itself? Yeah. I, you know, this... Like, is this an art world story at all, basically? Yes and no. I wrote about this in the recent Jerry Report, which is that if you walk into any gallery right now, or if you go to any art fair and you walk into a booth, you start talking to a senior sales associate, or you go to an artist and you listen to them talk, there is a tonality of activism that sort of permeates the contemporary art discourse. Everything is political and politically charged at the moment, whether it be something about, you know, personal identity politics to climate change to you name it it's there the art world therefore is a very charged political space totally and i think it's very funny when there's also this like <laughs> bottom line business monetizations uh, situation that is actually the machine that is running this but if you were to walk into these booths you would think that you're talking to activists and not business people. Non-profit runners. Yeah. Just and and not business God's people. Work. Yeah. 
And 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 the and, truth... and, and the collectors can absolve their sins by purchasing this painting. Right, exactly. Which is just just so not the case because t- you know technically we're, we're just putting more trash <laughs> in the in the landfill, which is Mother Earth. I mean. No offense. I love art. It's obviously, it might be, I wouldn't be here without it. But we'll be doing this show. Let's call a spade a spade. You know. Um, so it's, you know, it's problematic. The thing that makes me worry about all of this is the mimetic nature of the news and these news cycles. Mimetic and art speak a little bit. The word no memetic. memes. Memes. So Clear. the meme. So the meme of defacing artwork in the name of whatever it is your belief system. belief system happens to be, I find to be highly problematic because these things can be taken to extremes. Right. We've seen that happen, you know, with ISIS destroying ancient temples. We've seen that with, you know, communism, essentially, when they knocked out religion in Eastern Europe, yeah. built the horrific, like, architecture on top of, like, very, very beautiful, iconic... Gothic. ...buildings. And, yeah, so, sure. so you know, it's it's very scary when ideology begins to do something called, like, erasing people's history. Yeah. And it could st- start small with something like soup, and then it can get to something you know, bigger and a little right. scarier. I think it's important to note that no artworks were harmed in the making of these recent protests. Mm-hmm. There was an interview with one of the activists shortly afterward where the reporter asked, hey, you know, why did you choose those artworks? Uh, what's your point? And the activist said, look, we, we would never willingly harm the paintings and we knew that they were behind glass and that we would do no damage. But we're trying to get our message across on the environment. Recently, the protesters behind the Vermeer, uh, you know, vandalizing, were sentenced to prison. So <laughs> I guess they, they committed a crime, even though as harmless as they thought it was. So I don't know. Is this a trend? Do you think we'll see this moving forward? Do you think it'll, I mean, you alluded to it, could just potentially get worse? Yeah. Could we see actually people take it to the extreme of, I don't know tearing up a painting stabbing it well it can get a little it can go a a step further and and this is not to spook people or whatever but i did have a conversation a very candid conversation with some security team members at the met i don't even know if i told you this i was at the met recently and um, i got in trouble because i was doing a Jerry live, like walking (laughs) through and just, you know, talking bullshit about paintings, showing everyone what I was looking at. And I knew I was being followed the whole time. And finally, like this guy was like, ma'am, please, you have got to stop. Like we've asked you so many times, just stop. We know you're still filming. Like (laughs) we can see where everyone's watching you on camera right now. And I put, I put the camera down and I said, okay, I'm sorry, but can you just tell me like why? Like, can you explain like what's going on? Like, what, why, why am I not allowed to film in here? Like, people are allowed to take pictures. Why can't I film? And he said, um, like he didn't mince words. I, I don't even know if he was like supposed to tell me this. He said, but on a weekly basis, the Met uh, receives terrorist I threats. Know that. Really, they receive terrorist threats on a weekly basis. And they don't want people to sort of have access, scope, scope it out, to be able to know exactly yeah. how things are are placed and how you could like, like they're they're basically trying to sort of pre- keep yeah. it somewhat of a private space, even though it's a public space, so that they can sufficiently guard the works that are housed in the Met. And then I felt sort of bad. Because I understood that they really were doing their job. Like right. they were, they, they, they weren't trying to be dicks. They were trying to protect these works of yeah. art because they are getting these threats on a weekly basis. And I think, I think they are so iconic. Like these images. These are irreplaceable Irre- works. And across cultures, across throughout history, these images have been 
imprinted on the minds of, of the public, whether they know it or not. I'm sure everyone has seen, if you don't know the Vermeer painting, if you were to Google it, you would say, oh, I've seen that somewhere in some movie, some book. Scarlett Johansson. Scarlett Johansson. <laughs> I, I've come across. Right? Yeah. Van Gogh, it was the, is the iconic sunflowers. Mm -hmm. I mean, whose grandmother didn't have a bad print of that in their kitchen? It was an iconic image. So, you know, we worry about this. It's something to keep an eye on. And as Hildy said, as Jerry said, mm -hmm. it could escalate. And we can sure. lose something that we truly treasure as a society. And that's not good. So. I mean, and this was not an ideological thing, but we probably all remember how we felt the day that we saw um, the uh, Gothic cathedral in Paris on fire. Yeah, and yeah. and just like the, like, I'm not even French. And I was. It's sad. I was sad. crying. Because these, these are iconic images yeah. in our mind. And it, to see them. And they're part of our culture. Destroyed. It's not a good thing. So, so I I worry about the 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 mimetic quality of what this does. These kinds of acts can later bring on. So, you know, I'm just hoping that the buck stops here. So, Jerry, let's take a look at the art world calendar for the month of November. So, what's going on? You and I know we had the chance to see some shows this past week. Yep. So. What stood out to you? So, I mean, obviously, I didn't see it in person. I saw it online. I definitely think you should check out the Anna Wyant show. Totally. I did have the privilege of seeing the Christina Band Band show at Scarset, which is on the Upper East Side. Uh, yeah. Beautiful show. She worked her ass off. She filled all three floors of that gallery. Incredible, incredible work. And then Emily Mae Smith at Petzl Gallery. Love her. We love her. Wow. We stand her. Um, you guys, sorry, but I have to cut in because it's like, if you don't haven't seen Emily Mason's painting in person, you 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 have to. You they're have not to. the same thing as looking at them on Instagram. The the technique, the way she's able to paint like a grand manor Renaissance master with this contemporary imaging. Chef's kiss, Chef's baby. Kiss. Oh, so we love her. Go check out Emily at Petzl Gallery yep. on in Chelsea. And then, and then we did go to Paul Allen. My goodness, the visionary show Paul Allen, who recently passed away. Apparently, he did not have a wife or children. Founder of Microsoft. His children were. His children <laughs> were were world class collection yeah. of, of every, um, every form. And and it was pretty incredible to see. I mean, first of all, the one thing I love about like mega collectors, like big collectors. I've had the privilege of knowing a few true, real mm -hmm. mega collectors in my life is the real ones and the really, really, really good ones. What emerges is you start seeing th them, their personality come through, come through mm -hmm. in like the choices that they've made over time. And there's one in particular, of course, sorry, Beth DeWoody, I have to shout you out here because I've seen, <laughs> you know, your works in Palm Beach, your works in Los Angeles, and then also the, some of the stuff you have in New York. And it's like, I I go and I know that I'm looking at an Andy Warhol or I know I'm looking at, you know, this artist or that artist, but I, I see Beth when I look you at Beth. Beth's collection. You see the collector, their soul. Yeah. In this. And because they're true collectors, like they really, yeah. really love art. And I really believe Paul Allen loved art. Totally. And we had, we had so much fun. He had like, he had probably one of the best Monet Bridges paintings I've ever seen in my life. I want to, I want to, before we get into the work, which we will chat about, I want to set the scene. Oh, so yeah. I mean, so Christie's is located in Midtown at Rockefeller Center, mm -hmm. which is naturally, a, a, it's where the tree is, which is coming up soon. That iconic ice skating rink. So it does get a lot of foot traffic. But you walk into Christie's. What day was it? It was it like was a random Thursday. day, Thursday. Thursday at like 2 p.m. Mm -hmm. And we start, we get out of the subway or in the cab where we had walked and we we're, we're heading up to Rockefeller Center and we just start to see like, 100, 200 people uh, in a line outside of Christie's wrapped from Fifth Avenue to Sixth Avenue. The yeah. Full span of the block. Now, I've been to a lot of Christie's shows in my days. This probably happened maybe when they had the Da Vinci painting back in 2016, mm -hmm. the uh, Liz Taylor collection. So these really iconic stuff. 
I think this was up there with the amount of buzz. And you can see in the line, there was definitely some cool archives, definitely some Gmail advisor types. And definitely some geriatrics. But it was so funny. But because... also some, I think, just some people. Who, yeah. Just what like, is this I just see this. But I... pop culture. It was like this big moment. Yeah. The last thing I'll say before we get into the work and, and throw it over to you, and sorry, is <laughs> Christie's did this really smart marketing technique, which as you walked into the facade of the building, the doors all had vinyl kind of marketing imagery on them. And what they did was they just listed like a rock star or something, all the artists that you would see. So it was like Basquiat, Monet, Seurat, Gauguin. And it was like, these were, these were celebrities that you were going to go inside and witness. And it created this mystique. It was pretty amazing to watch. And, and we, we, uh, we cut the line, we crawled. Oh, the I, I love this. Like I, I, first of all, I have like cutting the line shame because, because I'm, I have this like, you know, I'm Norwegian. It yep. runs through my blood. Like I'm like, you know, you're not, you're not supposed to cut the line. Follow you're the you're supposed to follow the rules. Like you're not better than anybody. Like I, you just, I, I, I hate, I like, I can't stand doing it. However, I saw that line of 200 people and Matt used to work at Christie's and I was like, baby, you better get on the phone right now. I'm like, who do you know? I'm like, I can't wait in this line. You better call somebody. And like, right. And, and, and Matt starts like fumbling through his phone, like trying to figure out like who he's going to call to like, so get it was, us it was honestly like I'm going to like a nightclub and you're and <laughs> trying to find out which promoters in there, the DJ. And it was like a miracle from God because one of your old coworkers like walks by and it was just like, like there with me wraps her angel wings around us and brings us in and it was popping like a nightclub it's seriously two o'clock on a thursday yeah energy was so high so christie's the entire first floor was a gallery i think on one of the the wing to the left when you walk in was dedicated to the paul Allen collection and when we say like electric and kind of jaw dropping we do mean it i mean some of the works in there really blew your mind so for me Oh, the Monet Bridge, which we alluded to before. The Bather. The George Seurat that they have. What were some ones that stood out to you, Jerry? The Bather. Who painted that? The Bather. The, the one, the painting oh, of me. The, the painting of you. This is the one she, <laughs> Jerry, Hildy goes, I'm going to buy this. And I look at the price tag. It's an Andrew Wyeth with, for $2 million. So you love the Andrew Wyeth. I love the Andrew Wyeth. And yeah, I, I would like to crowd crowdsource that that purchase please <laughs> we'll because store it at the house it, yeah and you guys can come maybe maybe see it <laughs> it was uh it was a really amazing collection i mean you you it was so rich you you would miss yeah jewels like you, you in the corner of the room there'd be something a picasso there was turner throwaway turners botticelli botticelli so paul allen who was one of the founders of microsoft with bill gates he truly collected every genre and period at a high level except what was his number one fetish what we know what it is what the man loved venice the man loved venice. like if there was an artist that ever painted venice he got paul that. allen bought that art canaletto is the turnos <laughs> with the venice series. like all venice 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 so if you do get a chance i know the auctions the first one, I believe, is on the 9th, so Wednesday of this week, of November 9th. But it's still open today and tomorrow. So if you are in New York, it is a must-see. I couldn't recommend it enough. It's a free pop-up museum. Yeah, I, I wanted to say that. Like the, I think what people don't realize is that when Christie's or Sotheby's have these exhibitions, and they have them every month of the year, you can just check their websites, they often bring in museum-quality works. So think of it this way, during, particularly like when there's this evening big collection sales, you can go to the Met, you can go to the MoMA, and you should definitely check out Christie's at the same time, because these works are museum quality. Mm -hmm. All right, so we're going to wrap up with our last news story of the week. Jerry Gagosin herself has released a new edition of the Jerry Report. This one's entitled, Nothing Ever Happened. And it is a summary and kind of an exploration on Freeze London, Paris Plus, and how the art world is oftentimes separated from what is truly going on in the rest of the world. I'm going to read some excerpts of the report that Jerry put together to actually read the full summary 
please head over to Gagosian, G-O-G-O-S-I-A-N.com and subscribe to the newsletter and you'll find it there under the fair reports. So I want to say before I read some excerpts, the best part about this report is that Jerry didn't actually go to the fairs. So the art fair reports by Jerry have historically been Jerry herself going on the ground, being in the thick and the muck of an art fair. This report, nothing ever happened, to me was very special because you took a completely different view. Instead of being in the thick of things, you decided to take a helicopter view of what these art fairs meant in the context of what's going on in greater society. So I'll read some excerpts um, from it and give you guys a sense and definitely go and check it out. Hildy never left home for two weeks of the art world celebration. The incongruence of what I, Hildy, watched the art world celebrate for two weeks straight was highly different from the banality I had just had the privilege to exist in. While children were throwing soup at the glass of a Van Gogh, I was settling into the reality that supply chains for services and goods are boarding on chaos. Try buying fundamental things for a home right now and watch your order go from a 10-day delivery to delivery in early 2023. That's actually very true. We tried to buy CB2 pillow. We're waiting. We're still waiting. I don't even know when that yet. It's going to be 2030 by the time. We moved it. We moved it in October and we don't have pillows on our couch. She goes on to talk about how she <laughs> kept up a facade using her social media badly photoshopping herself into gallery exhibitions that were taking place there during the week. Mm -hmm. And friends of hers would reach out and say, hey, like, oh my God, girl, like, are you around? What's up? What are you doing tonight? And you played along with it and fooled many. Not all. Some people might have grabbed you, no? Yeah, one person did. One person was able mm -hmm. to. And then you kind of, I think what is my favorite part of the report is you say, even though I wasn't there, I'm going to guess what happened at the art fairs these last two weeks. And you list a bullet-pointed list of all the fun things that you predicted that happened. You said that every booth at both art fairs completely sold out two weeks before the show. You said that everyone had the time of their lives while bathing in pure luxury. Light and inconsequential conversations were held. <laughs> Gossip was spread. Dealers had the privilege of being rude to people richer than themselves. People got tipsy, that, that for sure. And you talk about some of the artists that stood out from the show. So the report is available on gagosian.com. It gives a good summary of what happened at, at London Freeze and Paris Plus, uh, and then how it relates to really what's happening, as I mentioned, in the broader context of society. In the backdrop of the Bacchanalia in Western Europe, there is, of course, Ukraine, energy crises, inflation, upcoming recession. So... Jerry really takes a crack at trying to, you know, form an idea around all these things and how they interrelate. So, Jerry, how was it report writing the report? Was it fun? Did you enjoy it? Tell me about the experience of not actually attending these fairs, but being able to give such a detailed report about them. Yeah, well, first of all, it was it was actually fun and sort of necessary for me. Uh, well, first of all, I had to get my passport re renewed. Oh, that was a whole saga. Um, hey, people, I just want to... Oh, PSA. This is a very important announcement. Very important PSA. Please check the expiration date of your passport. Mm -hmm. I have now known two people who have found out the hard way that if your passport expires within... Three months. Three months, that you cannot from U.S. travel to... to Europe. Europe the Schengen region, all the countries. So if you wanted to go to Venice, if you wanted to go to London, if you wanted to go to Paris, you will not be able to if your passport, even though it is still active, expires within three months. So go get that checked. Mm -hmm. Make sure. I think even some countries have a six-month policy. Mm -hmm. It's something that you don't realize at the time yeah. until you get rejected at TSA and they're like, go. And you Bye. have to leave the airport. Leave that, luckily, that didn't happen to me, but renewed. I found out via my future mother-in-law that that was the case. So I realized I wasn't going to be able to be in attendance, which worked out in my favor because I did need a bit of a respite. There's been so many fairs. Uh, so basically since I, you know, I, I attended the first Art Basel back in September 2021. That was sort of the kickoff to like, let's say, art fair is really happening again and I've been at pretty much every single freeze and 
I've I've been going, going, going. I've been on a plane every other week for the last year and a half, two years. And, you know, my new sort of side hustle, not hustle yet, hobby is that I'm going to great lengths to begin to understand global economics and what exactly is happening and like, what does a recession mean? What what is happening financially in the world? Why are these things happening? What's going on geopolitically to to make the world look and feel the way that it does? And it just, and this is not to art fair shame anybody or luxury shame anybody. I'm going to Art Basel in Miami. So again, this is not a, this was not to point any fingers, but it was, it was a good idea for me to sit this one out and kind of reflect, reflect. And it was so easy to lie and fake people out with my masterful, very bad photoshopping skills and just tagging, hashtagging, retagging myself in such an obnoxious way that people just assume that, of course, I must be there. All my friends know this about me. I'm not a party girl. So it was always very believable that when people would text me like, where are you? I'm like, oh, I'm already in bed or, oh, I'm already on my way to Paris. You know, so I kind of was always like one step ahead. And so the idea of writing this report, nothing ever happened, was just this idea that by the time I was Jerry, Jerry was in London, I was already getting messages like, what day are you going to Paris? Yeah. And then You're already looking ahead. Yeah. And then once I was in Paris, people are like, well, where, where are you going to stay in Miami? Like, what's going on in Miami? What are you doing during Miami? So it was like, the art world is moving at such a rapacious rate. It is becoming mainstreamed so fast. I didn't actually feel in the end, like in this particular instance, my attendance was necessary for me to full, have a full understanding of exactly what right. happened. It was really time for me to just like sit down, be quiet and observe the art world channel via social media and understand what I could deduce that way while also keeping up with the Financial Times, the Wall Street Journal, and, you know, multiple news outlets outside of the art world to sort of get a more, a better full picture of what actually is happening in the art world and then the incong, or what's actually happening in the world and the, like, sort of incongruence of what's happening in the quote-unquote art world. Right. So, guys, the report is out now on gagosian.com. Check it out. All right, Jerry. So, well, what do you think? You, the audience has heard our our voices enough. They're kind of yeah. they're kind of ready to go. I think, I think you guys you got what you need. I will say this in our closing remarks today. I sent out an email to the people that subscribe to my mailing list, which you can also do by going to gozian.com. I worked on a very special project during Freeze New York of last year with Hiba Shabazz. I worked with her to have a painting commissioned called Harbor, in which she painted some very beautiful and iconic living contemporary painters into one painting that we, in turn, were able to place in a museum. And the proceeds from the sale of that painting were earmarked to give a woman artist or female identifying artist an opportunity to help offset their studio costs for the upcoming 2023 year. It's a nice little chunk of cash that we are giving with all the love in our hearts to help support women artists be able to continue to make work. The application is out now, how to apply. And if you don't subscribe, please subscribe because these opportunities do come up. I work very hard to make them happen. And I try to be as absolutely generous as possible to reach out and help my fellow artists as much as I can, because you know what? Been there. I know what it's like. It's hard. It's expensive. So look for that on gagosian.com. And we will be doing this podcast once a week. That's going to be our mission. Our mission. Our mission, our goal, of course. We'll keep you posted if there's changes, but we are going to try to get one out once a week. And we want to have a dialogue with you, the audience, the listeners. So please send us an email to jerry 
at LarrySaltz.com. We'll link it in the description here. And we'd love to hear from you guys on what topics you want to see covered. Who do you want us to interview and speak with? Between Heldy and I, we can get together a pretty kick-ass group of our own people, artists, collectors, dealers, advisors, market people, and really give a full picture about what is happening in the wild west of the art world. So please reach out to us, send an email, title, put it in the subject, your podcast requests, and we'll do our best to incorporate it into the show. Yeah. And if you wouldn't mind rating the podcast, whether it be on Spotify or Apple, it's going to just make discovering the podcast easier for people. Be nice. All right, guys. Thanks so much. See you on the internet.